Hello, and thank you for listening to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. My name is Lauren Cochran, a PhD student at the University of Exeter and alumni of the University of Dundee. Today, I'm talking to Dorothy Boulanger, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oxford. Hi, Dorothy. Thank you for agreeing to participate in the podcast and sharing your research with us. Could you introduce yourself for our audience? Of course. Good morning, Lauren. Thank you for inviting me to to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. My name, uh, as you said, is Dorothée Boulanger. I'm a Leverlium Early Career Fellow at the Faculty of Modern Languages in Oxford and a Junior Research Fellow at Jesus College, Oxford. I work on African literature and history, and especially on Lusophone African literature and history. Thank you for that introduction. So your book, History as Fiction, was published in October this year. Could you provide a summary of that text? Of course. Um, so my book is called Fiction as History, Resistance and Complicities in Angolan Postcolonial Literature. It's based on my PhD dissertation that I completed in the history department at King's College London. The basis of, of this book is the exploration of about 12 to 15 Angolan novels that were written after independence by about eight Angolan writers. And I was interested both in the text themselves, but also in reflecting on the intellectual and political trajectory of the writers. The idea was uh, by providing a, a history of Angola through fiction to also locate the country's past and present within major global history phenomena, such as slavery and colonialism, the Cold War, non-alignment, revolutionary and imperialism, but also extractivism, you know, Angola is one of the, is currently actually the major oil producer in Africa. But it also has some very, there are also some very interesting regional politics that have impacted Angolan history, such as, you know, the apartheid in, in South Africa. So what I wanted to do, and what I'm doing in this book, is to look at fiction as a historical source. What that means is I look at the writer's intention to, you know, write about their country's history in their own voice from an Angolan perspective. And what I showed was not only that these novels provided a really important account of history as seen through Angolan eyes, but also that the writer's proximity to the ruling party in Angola, the MPLA, provided specific insight into Angolan politics. And it's that relation between history, politics, and literature that this book uh, explores in, in its various chapters. So why did you choose this project and what were your motivations? About, about a decade ago, I was living in Angola. Uh, I was living in Lubito, which is not the capital. The capital is Luanda. Lubito is a smaller port city. And I was very struck by the silence of the population around politics or around you know, the past. It was very clear that people were uncomfortable talking about, so they had just emerged from a civil war, right? So Angola's history is, Angola was a Portuguese colony. The Portuguese uh, Estado Novo, new state, was a dictatorship. It didn't allow for political organization, which meant that at the moment of decolonization, anti-colonial movements in the Portuguese colonies uh, were not allowed to organize, were not allowed to you know, formally ask for independence. And the refusal of the Portuguese state to grant them independence or even to sort of open negotiations with nationalist forces led to anti-colonial armed conflicts in its various colonies and especially in Guinea-Bissau, Angola and Mozambique. 
So for over a decade in, in Angola, between 61 and 74, there was an armed anti-colonial struggle against the Portuguese forces. After that, there was a coup in Portugal and a transition to democracy and to the decolonization of its colonies. However, by then, the nationalist movement in Angola was divided between several parties. And when independence came, these parties were not capable of either you know, coming together in a great coalition or of organizing free and fair elections. They fought so that after 14 years of anti-colonial war, Angola then experienced 27 years of civil war. And the civil war ended in 2002. I was living in Angola between 2009 and 2011, so less than a decade after the end of the civil war. And you could tell that people were very uncomfortable talking about that, talking about their suffering, talking about uh, the ruling party, which had been in power since 75, is still in power today. And, you know, when, when I was there, the president had been there for um, over 20 years as well, over 30 years, actually. Stayed, uh, Jose Eduardo dos Santos stayed in power for 36 years in total. So I could tell that there was this very uncomfortable silence. And, and then I read Angolan novels and I realized that these novels were extremely political. And they were saying lots of things about very sensitive topics, about the dictatorship, about violence, about trauma. And I, I was struck by this kind of discrepancy, right, between writers that seemed very free to talk and to talk critically about what was happening in their country and the general population who was much more uncomfortable doing so. And so I, it, you know, it begged the question, who are these writers? Why do they have this freedom? And so I started uh, looking at this, reading fiction, but also trying to understand who these writers were. And what I realized was that these writers were often people who had been part of the MPLA, so the anti-colonial nationalist movement turned ruling party in Angola, Movimento Popular de Libertación de Angola. They had been very close to this party. They, for many of them, had even uh, held official uh, posts and been part of the first government after independence. So they had not only tremendous insight into what was happening in their country, but they also had a very specific status, a very prestigious status, because they were considered anti-colonial intellectuals who had you know, talked about the Angolan plight under the Portuguese. My motivation was to show, to demonstrate how fiction here was also political theory, was also history. I wanted to show how fiction was carrying a very rich intellectual history, but also a very ambivalent stance, if you want, between intellectuals and politics. For me, it was a way to, it was a sort of, it was an ethical way into Angolan history to tell it through Angolan eyes, but then to take these novels seriously enough that I could also be critical of them, think about their silences, think about their discrepancies, and look at what the writers were comfortable talking about and what they seemed a bit less comfortable writing about. From what you've just said about these kind of silences in the historical record and and these the writers that you have focused on being predominantly engaged with the MPLA or being considered anti-colonial did you find that because these people were willing to speak the silences among the population were more from the non-political communities is that something that you found yes I mean what I found is that the the writers definitely felt more at ease voicing certain opinions talking about certain events of 
for the right, the, the writers have this kind of privileged social position where their patriotism would uh, was less likely to be attacked. Some of them did. Some of them were very strong dissenters and actually um, often live in exile. But the majority of them, I would say, stayed close to power or to, if you want, the kind of, you know, ruling elite, social elite of, of the Luanda capital and were felt free to talk about many things. So one of the arguments of my project, um, there are several, but one, one of them is that writers have this ambivalent position. So it, it, it goes against a certain romanticization of postcolonial writers that you can see a lot in, in literary criticism. This idea that because they took part in anti-colonial struggle, because they denounced colonialism, you know, they are always on the subaltern side. They are always defending the subaltern gr groups in, in their countries. I found in Angola that the picture is much more complicated than that. And it was important to understand that the writers definitely had had that great contribution. They had been uh, very important vectors of anti-colonial mobilization and denunciation, but they were also, they had also at times after independence supported a party that was extremely violent, authoritarian, um, and, and very problematic, if you want. So it, it, I wanted to show that it was their status and their contribution was more nuanced, more complex. And Showing this nuance and this complexity was also a way to show the problematic complexity of the ruling party, the MPLA, which you know presented itself as a, a, a popular movement, right? It's it's in their name, MPLA for uh, popular, the people. But we're actually this party was actually emanating from a small fraction of colonial society that was quite close even to colonial power, that was multiracial, urban. Um, and historically creolized because it was from this capital city, Luanda, which has a very long story of cross-cultural exchange. So I wanted to show that the MPLA and the writers were coming from this tiny minority of the Angolan population, which meant that they also had a very ambivalent relation to Africanness and to the Black population generally. So looking at fiction was a way of thinking, how did writers defend the majority population at times, but how did they also sometimes sort of fall back onto a relatively elitist stance? Coming off from that, could you summarize the main arguments of your book? If I want to summarize the main argument of my book, I would say that my study shows that Angolan literature is, Angolan fiction, if you want, is a historical source in that it brings incredible insight into the politics of the country, as well as into the complex history of the country, including legacies of slavery and anti-Blackness. The other argument that I make is that if we take fiction seriously, if we take fiction as you know powerful texts and texts about power, we also need to think about where they're coming from. And what I showed is that almost all prestigious published writer, writers in Angola are men, and it's really interesting in their literature how they fail to capture women's agency, women's contribution to Angolan history, including um, to Angola's uh, anti-colonial struggle. So I show that this literature is extremely masculine, um, does not uh, do justice to the contribution of Angolan women, and that it has an ambivalent relation to political power in Angola. 
while offering amazing insight into the country's history and politics. What contributions do you think that this research has made to the wider scholarship and what knowledge gap do you think that this has filled? There are different contributions depending on, you know, which perspective you adopt. Clearly, in terms of literary criticism of Angola, the fact that I critically explore the novels and think about that sort of, you know, ethical and political ambivalence and something that hadn't really been tackled or certainly hadn't been tackled as a sort of systematic, you know, uh, uh, aspect of, of the literary landscape. The other contribution that I make is showing how fiction was one of the first mediums through which the focus of political struggles and tensions and division was displaced from colonialism to slavery. So fiction and historical novels were pioneer in thinking about the impact of slavery on Angola and thinking about the connection of the post-colonial ruling elite with the you know, Luso-African elite that emerged during the Atlantic uh, slave trade. So I think these are the knowledge gaps that I looked at. And finally, it's, we're kind of in between knowledge gap and methodology, so maybe we'll explore that later, but also the idea of you know, weaving disciplines together, showing that historians have something to gain by including fiction into their sources, taking fiction seriously, crossing fiction with other types of sources, uh, was, I think, an important part of, of the argument I make. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think quite often people can forget that that fiction about a specific period of, of history can actually be a historical source in providing perspectives. I study Kenya myself, and obviously there's quite a few novels, you know, in Googie and things like that, that can be really helpful in providing a perspective that you can't necessarily get from historical documents. So because you mentioned methodology, could you talk a little bit more about that and the types of sources that you used Yes, absolutely. The first method for me was close reading. So I was really looking at these novels and, and looking at them in comparison. So it was really important for me to see which writer was talking about what, but also whether writers were sort of, you know, changing opinions or changing perspective on certain events uh, across their careers, because, you know, some of them have been writing for 50 years. So it's, it's fascinating to see the evolution. So close reading, definitely, the idea was really to put these texts at the center of my reflection. And, you know, I mentioned the fact that it's doing this is also an ethical way into Angolan history. I pursued this by also locating these texts within wider African scholarship, um, you know, African discourse, whether theoretically, philosophically. It was really important for me to not only use primary sources, but also to use uh, African secondary sources, you know, look at the contribution by thinkers like Ngugi Wachongo, like Amilka Cabral, Valentin Mundimbe, and see, you know, how the fictions were responding to some of, of the points raised by these intellectuals. So in terms of methodology, for me, weaving an African intellectual discourse or historiographical discourse with fiction, with African fiction, was absolutely essential. The other methodology that I used was to apply a gender lens throughout the books. I, I was trained in gender studies a while ago, and I didn't think when I started this project, gender wasn't featuring prominently in it. That wasn't my, my focus. But reading the novels, it was so obvious, you know, the kind of militarized masculinities that was being promoted, the very secondary roles given to, you know, female characters, etc. And again, I 
seeing this throughout the book showed that it was a structural issue. So gender was really, really useful in thinking about masculinities and thinking about women in, in Angolan contemporary history and in the kind of, again, you know, Angolan collective imagination, if you want. The methodology was mostly a literary one, but then, of course, I also used lots of Angolan media and political discourse. I wanted to look at the contribution of, of fiction in relation to other types of discourse, you know, from and about Angola. So looking at the Angolan newspapers who are often controlled by state, looking at political discourse, um, because history is also something that features prominently in political discourse. So how do the leaders talk about history and how novels, you know, um, confront this, subvert this, parody this, etc. is really important. Has there been any specific source or any of these these fiction texts that you've come across in your research that you find you found particularly interesting or important or surprising? Some of the novels are are really interesting. Some of them are really rewriting certain historical episodes and and you know rewriting them from inside, but also with freedom that gives fiction to you know, provide very severe accounts. So for example, in Angola in 77, there was a, an attempted coup, a military coup that was trying from a dissident faction of the ruling party that was trying to overthrow President Agostinho Neto. And by the way, just as a parenthesis, Agostinho Neto was the leader of the MPLA and he was the first Angolan president and he was a poet and he was a famous poet. So this connection between, um, you know, literature and, and politics is something that is very much at the heart of the Angolan postcolonial project and of the MPLA postcolonial project, at least initially. So yes, there was this coup attempt that tried to oust Neto from power in 77. It failed and then it led to an, a terrible repression. The coup itself killed about a dozen of MPLA quadros, you know, leaders. So it was a bloody coup. Then it failed and repression probably killed. It's very much a taboo in, in, in Angolan politics, but probably killed several thousands, if not ten of thousands of people, uh, most of them quite close to, to the party in power. So, you know, this sense of the party killing its own followers and members was, was extremely problematic. And the writers closest to power have never written about the coup. So it's really interesting to see that this is a, a complete literary taboo for part of the Angolan uh, literary elite. But the writers who are not close to power, who have you know, fallen off or are maybe from a slightly younger generation, they have talked about the coup. And they have talked about it in amazing ways. And again, were the first to sort of, of you know, mention this and think about this violence and its connection to the country historical violence inherited from from the Atlantic slave trade so these sources were key but for me what was even more important than you know the contribution of one novel was to really build these conversations across novels to be able to paint a kind of landscape of of Angolan intellectuals and Angolan history through fiction it was essential to put these texts in conversation to look at the taboos to look at the evolutions and to think about you know, how these writers themselves were navigating this very, very thin line between, you know, speaking truth to power, but also sort of protecting themselves as former, at least, supporters of, of that power. Is there one or several works of Angolan fiction that you would recommend for anybody who's interested in capturing this idea of Angolan fiction as history that you've spoken about? 
yes, there there are lots. I, I, I will only limit myself to a few of them. And also I will talk about maybe those who have been translated because as you can imagine, it's also a problem, isn't it? The question of languages in Africa and, and you know, which languages are able to make their way into scholarship. Angolan writers generally write in Portuguese but, uh, and, and not in African languages. But even the fact that it's Portuguese and not English makes it problematic for many scholars and students to you know, even engage with them at all. Some of them have been translated, so I'll, 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 I'll talk about those. One of the most famous Angolan novels that has been translated is by the most famous uh, Angolan writer called Pepe Tela. And his novel is called Mayombe. It's been trans. It's it, it's a novel that was written in the late '60s, published in the '70s. It's been translated, I believe, in 1981 in English, and it follows a group of guerrilla fighters during the anti-colonial war. So it's fascinating because, on the one hand, it's a very moving document that was written during that time. It was, you know, and Pepetela himself was a guerrilla fighter and instructor. So it's a very much a, a personal account, but also the novel, you know, by using several narrators is also able to show the kind of kaleidoscope of people forming the Angolan nation, but also showing all the trouble that these people had coming together, believing in the same project, showing, you know, the kind of integrity and selflessness that you need as a guerrilla fighter. So it's, and it, it, it's also already a sort of prediction of the risks of this, you know, anti-colonial movement turning ruling party and what that might entail. So it's it's a fascinating book and it's very it's quite easy to read. So it's very approachable. Another one of my favorites, and this one is well known because its writer is quite known on the kind of you know world literature scene, is by Jose Eduardo Agualusa, and the. English translation of the novel is uh, Creole, and it's in, in, in Portuguese it's Nação Criola, Creole Nation, but it's just Creole in English. And it's, you know, an early 19th century correspondence between several people in and across the Atlantic, so in between Brazil and Luanda and Portugal. And so it, it is, it's a great window into thinking of Creole society, this multiracial, you know, hybrid society, elites navigating across the Atlantic, you know, at the end of, of the slave trade. It's really interesting historically and again, very pleasant to read. I'll give a third one, if I may. And that's by a third writer. He's a bit younger. He's not from the uh, nationalist generation. He's in his 40s today. He's called Onjaki. And uh, Onjaki wrote a book that was translated in English. It's called Grandma 19 and the, and the Soviet Secret. And Grandma 19 and the Soviet Secret is like several other small books by Onjaki about his childhood in 1980s socialist Luanda. And again, it's a fascinating document about every day uh, in 1980s Luanda. When, you know, the country was completely shut. So it's not like there were many foreigners or researchers who could come here. And he talks about, you know, his Cuban teachers. He talks about the civil war and, you know, people who were sent to the front. He talks about everyday, you know, material culture, but also, you know, the very precariousness of it all. And it's beautifully, very poetically written. So it's it's a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful insight into, again, the Angolan imagination, I think.
Thank you for those recommendations. So you said you lived in Angola from 2009 to 2011, and you've mentioned this these silences about Angolan history and people not being willing to speak about them. Have you engaged with members of the Angolan community since since living there or since writing this book? And if so, do you think there's been a change in these kind of silences? Do you think people are more willing to talk about their history now? Is this an ongoing change? Yes, things have been moving in the last decade in very interesting directions. It was very clear during the presidency of José Eduardo dos Santos, who came to power at the death of Neto in 1979, and who then gave up power in 2017. And it was very clear that um, the 27th of May, it, it wasn't possible to talk about this. It was really hard to criticize power. People were still living in the fear that had prevailed during the civil war. So there was still very much this sense of, you know, that the Angolans talk about a dictatura do silencio, the dictatorship of silence. This was very strong, including in the first decade after the end of the civil war. It changed then. There's several reasons for that. The Arab Spring was definitely an influence. So people saw, you know, the youth of Egypt, Tunisia, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and Libya, etc., rise against their dictators, denounce uh, authoritarian rule. And that inspired a small minority of Angolans, but still, and through, you know, social media, there were more discussions and a real demand for change from the younger generation. So something happened then. But demonstrations were always very you know tiny uh, the power would arrest anyone who started gathering and organize gigantic counter demonstrations that they would call demonstrations for peace so of course lots of people flogged those there was really this sense in angola of if you speak against power it means you want war you know so a very internal enemy kind of of logic and however the last years of dos santos presidency were so corrupt, so problematic, um, that people were starting to feel more and more angry, didn't necessarily express it a lot, but there was this sense. And then he was replaced by um, uh, Juan Lorenzo, who is now the, the, the president, who was very much his protege at the time of the transition of power, the idea being that the party still stays in power. And then Juan Lorenzo decided that he, you know, said very publicly that he was going to fight corruption. So there was a sense of, oh, we're finally talking about this. But also uh, he did things about the coup of the 27th of May. He said that, you know, families will be notified if they had lost someone, you know, if we knew where that person was buried, etc. So there really was a sense of we're going to be working with this memory. But it's, it's not huge. Uh, it's not huge. There is still a sense of very strong censorship. Um, but I think, and, and the Angolans who have, you know, read my book or read parts of my dissertation, etc. Um, it was interesting. They, there was a sense of relief because they were not entirely satisfied with how writers were treated by Western academics. They felt that writers were very much, you know, given this sort of prominent prestigious role and they wanted to show that they also had a, a more problematic side. So they liked that kind of critical engagement with, with literature and with the writers themselves. So things are changing, uh, but slowly and carefully because you know 40 years of armed conflicts will make people very careful and very worried about the return of violence, state violence or you know, mass violence. That's great to hear that things are moving towards a kind of progressive depiction of history. So to circle back to your project, how do you feel that your book 
changes the way that we think about your topic? Well, I would certainly hope that uh, it shows literature as a very capacious source. I very much hope it also gets us to think critically about, you know, European disciplinary boundaries. I do think that um, when you do African studies, whatever the discipline, you will be exploring things in an interdisciplinary lens. And so the very neat European division between history and literature, where, you know, literary scholars will maybe look at, uh, you know, historical context, and then historians will maybe read novels that are relevant, but not incorporated. I very much hope that I contribute to shaking this. And again, it's shaking this in the context of, you know, thinking about uh, decolonial epistemologies, taking African sources, including African fiction, seriously, and showing what it can contribute to a whole range of disciplines from history to international relations to gender studies. Could you tell us a little bit about your postdoc and maybe what you're working on now? Yes. So initially, what I wanted to do in my postdoc was take, you know, this kind of conclusion of my PhD. Okay, you know, African fiction is so capacious. How do we get to think about that? And how do we keep pushing for, you know, taking seriously uh, African concepts and and African intellectual history? So my postdoc decided it was really about um, doing a comparative analysis of Angolan literature with other types of literature, Algerian Congolese and Zimbabwean literature mostly. And I I wanted to do this differently from, um, you know, classical comparative projects, which will look at one region of Africa or would look at just one language. So I wanted it to be multilingual. And my focus was really on thinking about countries who've had very strong similarities in their post-colonial trajectories. So all these countries have either had an anti-colonial war and or a civil war and a socialist dictatorship, and an engagement with the idea of revolution. So I was really interested in thinking about revolution from an African standpoint, with all the global connections that it entailed, right? Cuba, Vietnam, Algeria, Russia. I was really interested in putting Africa and African literature on that kind of global revolutionary map. Um, it has some connections, if you want, with the works of Monica Popescu, for example, who wrote at Penpoint, uh, which was published last year. So thinking about African revolutionary narratives and thinking about African writers as these complex intellectuals. I I did that through the lens of the figure of the griot. So I was really interested in taking the griot, you know, this West African praise singer who is also a genealogist, a historian, a performer, but also someone who can speak truth to power and has this kind of ambivalent standpoint of being close to power, but also sometimes the only one who can speak truth to power by resorting to either, you know, parabola or history. So I wanted to use the griot as a concept and think about you know, African theory around the griot and what it did to African fiction. So this is this is the, the postdoc project. This is what I've been looking at. And it's really interesting. You know, if you look at Yvonne Vera, who is a woman, how she writes about, um, you know, African female historical figures such as Nihanda. And you compare that with how Pepetela writes about Luigi uh, in Angola. It's it's fascinating to see the differences, to see how, you know, women are more empowered when they're um, themselves written by women writers, for example. But also looking at Algerian literature and how, you know, the question of the aftermath of the anti-colonial struggle is raised is is really interesting in comparison with Angola. That sounds like a fascinating project. How far along are you in the postdoc? 
this is my last year. Um, this is my last year, and I've taken uh, many tangents as well. I'm more and more interested in, uh, you know, icker criticism <laughs> as well. Still very interested in gender, so it's going in many directions. But yeah, this is my final year, and I've I've really enjoyed being able to to devote all those years to African fiction and African theory. Well, that is going to conclude our discussion. Thank you for joining us, Dorothy, and I wish you all the best in your future work. Thank you very much, Lauren.